Oh, look at that. The numbers are moving. So for those of you listening online, I just passed around a yellow tablet asking for sign-ups for people who might be interested in a summer class and specific what would you like to study, uh, the parameters being a book or section of a book. For example, we've done studies on Sermon on the Mount. Rather than the entire book of Matthew, we will not have time for a study in the summer as long as it would take for the entire book of Matthew. Uh, so things like that. Um, now we enter into Romans 12, and uh, in case you haven't noticed, there is a bit of a difference in content that happens from chapter 11 to chapter 12, and that's why that division of chapter was put in at that place. Because Paul generally um, focuses on, for want of a better term, theological concepts or principles in the first part of his letter after his greeting, and then turns to the normal living out of those same principles. So some of it have described it as the theological section and the practical or pragmatic section. I really hate that breakdown uh, because it, it, it tries to then present, quote, theology, which by the way just simply means a study about God, um, as impractical or not pragmatic. And I'm not willing to buy that. However, Paul does move in the 12th chapter to a whole different tone, um, and, and what he's going to be teaching is a lot more immediately uh, observable and, and uh, applicable in terms of do this, do this, don't do this, etc. With all of that, do you have any questions on chapter 12, the transition to it, any words, uh, whether they're on my list or not? Uh, any of my questions or any of the questions that you came up with, which technically would be chap or question 13, which is what questions do you have? may just ask you to come up one at a time and take a section. <laughs> no, I don't want to be here. It's going to be like that. Okay. Well, in that case, let's just go straight to chapter 12. Does anybody need a hard copy of tonight's study guide? Okay. I believe we hit them at the end. Do you think we didn't? Do you know what they are? Well, that ain't helpful. Let's see. Yeah, we had the question about um, the random. Okay, the only one perhaps. I, I think we kind of obliquely hit it, but maybe we didn't hit it hard enough, was question 11, and it was about the phrase, shut up in disobedience. Okay, so the others are all marked off. 
but I did take a picture of that. So, look at that real quick. Okay, 11.32. So, if you would scroll in your Bibles back to 11.32... Yeah, I know. Um, and actually, let's start at 28, so we can look at the, the paragraph and then address that. From the standpoint of the gospel, they, <coughs> excuse me, are enemies for your sake. Who's they? It's Israel. Remember, Paul's constantly addressing Israel, or the, the Jewish Christians, the Gentile Christians. Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians. Back and forth, back and forth. So, now he's talking about the, the Jewish Christians who had the law, had the covenant, did not believe, and attempted to live out the covenant based on the basis of a covenant that was rejected. Hence, the metaphor of Ishmael versus Isaac. Ishmael being law or human effort, Isaac being faith. So from the, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. Okay, now remember he had gone through that whole thing about the effect of the disobedience to the law showing uh, what needed to happen and then the grafting in of those who respond to that, meaning whoever responds to the gospel in faith. I just summarized and paraphrased two chapters, I think. So, just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. And the question is, what does shut up mean? And how exactly did God shut them up in disobedience? And hence, think context, context, context. Any thoughts? In the context of what we have been studying, and you should be able to do this one without looking in your, in your Bibles and notes because this has been so often talked. What exactly were they disobedient to? What did they disobey? The Jews. Not a trick question. The law. See, you knew it. And you're sitting back going, I'm not going to say that. It's obvious. So it's obviously not the right answer. He's trying to trick me. 
And I promised you, I will always tell you it's a trick question when it's a trick question. I won't tell you, I won't do them, but I'll tell you that's what it is. So they were disobedient to the law. What was the effect in this, let's, let's go back to this um, metaphor that he uses of the olive tree. And there's branches. And there's the branches that were the Jews and the branches um, that were of a wild tree somewhere over there that are Gentiles. Right? Now, what happens to the branches who are disobedient? They're cut off. Okay? So, literally, just cut off, just as you would um, a stem or, or a branch that uh, you don't want to continue growing as you're shaping a tree or a vine. And then there's those others over there who are also, by the way, disobedient, although not to the law, but to what they knew to be right. Okay? Because the Gentiles were not proclaimed to be without sin just because they didn't have the law. Right? Everybody agree? Of course they were. They, they knew they were doing things wrong. But they didn't know them as well because they didn't have the law. And so they were given a way to come in, and that way was not the law, and they were not tempted to the law because that wasn't their heritage. The only people who were tempted to go back to the law and try to earn their way into the body of Christ by law were the Jews. And, frankly, those that the Jews then hook into their teaching because that was theirs. So, the Gentiles, how did they get grafted in? By, by faith in Christ. Okay. Christ is, in fact, the tree. The body of Christ is what we want to be part of. And so, through faith. Again, over and over and over in Romans, Paul emphasizes this, both for the Gentiles, but also for the Jews who don't get this. Because their history is so wrapped up in the law. So, the Jews have been disobedient. And because of that disobedience, they're, to use that metaphor, they're cut off. And the Gentiles, who are being obedient in faith, not obedient to the law, but obedient to the call of faith, they're crafted in. And then it says, so the, these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. God has shut up all in disobedience. Now, the word shut up, did anybody happen to look at that? Okay. It, it can mean in prison. It can also mean him in, gather, group. God has put them all together in, in disobedience. Okay. Now, you can argue and, and have fun because both are arguable that this is a much more intense word in this context meaning God very deliberately put those, all of those people in a position where they were going to disobey and then just be stuck there. Except that doesn't seem to fit the whole concept of the gospel. 
that, that Paul is saying. God he doesn't want anybody stuck anywhere. He wants them to come to faith. Or you could then look at this word as the, the lighter usage of the same word, which means to gather together, to enclose, to, to group. Um, if those of you who are math people, to put in a set, you know, however that clicks for you. So that as a group of people, he can then say to them, now, you are shown mercy, and here's how the mercy is going to be shown. All of you who disobeyed are cut off. But, as he said to the Gentiles when he said, don't get cocky, again, paraphrase, sorry, uh, you can also be cut off. If the natural branch can be cut off, so can you. So don't be thinking just because you're grafted in that you're what it's all about. It's, that's not the case. And they can be grafted back in. Now on what basis can these people who have been enclosed in disobedience, what, what enclosed them, by the way? I mean, not who? What? What? No, in, in disobedience, what closed them? And closed them. That's what lets them out. But yeah. But specifically, how did they reject? You said it already. I'm just trying to bring. Okay. So what did they believe in? The law. So they chose the law, but guess what? They didn't keep the law. See. So it is the law that encapsulized them, that shut them up in disobedience. Of course God gave them the law. So I'm not trying to say, no, it wasn't God at all. I'm now humanizing the law. But God used the law to do that, and he did it strategically. Because, hopefully, they will now see, as Paul did. Remember, Paul was a Pharisee. I mean, one of the most dedicated to the law. That you can't come to God through the law. That in fact the point of the law was to show you you can't do this on your own and lead you to faith. So now he can show mercy to all of them but on what basis is that mercy? Same, same basis as the wild tree people over there. You see it? What's the basis of that? How did they get how did they get in? You said it a minute ago. How did they get grafted in? Faith. Righteousness by faith. Not their own righteousness. Jesus righteousness. By faith. So as soon as these guys who are shut up in disobedience respond in faith, which by the way is what he's been saying that whole chapter, then they too can be grafted back in. Mercy can be shown to them. It's not that God has, has walled them off and said, you're done. There is no hope, there is no choice, there is no possibility for you. No, God, what God did is put them aside and say, as long as you are the basis of your salvation, you're shut up. Because you are disobedient. You, you, you have disobeyed the law. So you can't do it. But when you give that up and turn to faith instead, 
you break that hold. And, there, and mercy is still there for you, even though you're a sinner, even though you violated the very basis you claimed was going to get you in the body of Christ or get you to be accepted by God. Does that make sense? So Paul is basically, through all of this, doing what Paul does, which is he, he throws out concepts and then he illustrates them a lot of different ways. Um, in modern, modern parlance, he mixes his metaphors, unfortunately, uh, frequently, creating new metaphors and new metaphors and then going back to the old ones. And so in order to understand it, you've got to read the whole context and just keep looking at that context. And when you look at this in the, in the context of what he said in chapters 10 and 11, it becomes real clear that's what he's saying. But if you look at it separately, you're, just, you're going to scratch your heads forever because it's not intended to be understood separately. Um, yes, but, but remember the word end there was one of those fun words that does not mean uh, cut it off, it no longer exists. It is the fulfillment, probably the best word, there's a number of others like that, the purpose of the law, the goal of the law. Yeah, but it was, but it was never to shut off the law. The law, according to Jesus, is just as important today as it ever was. But they misunderstood the purpose of it from the beginning. I mean, go back all the way to Jonah. Did, did the Assyrians have the law, and did the Assyrians keep the law? No. Neither. And yet, God sent a prophet to them, albeit reluctantly, and, uh, okay, so reluctance is an undersell. <laughs> he still got him there. And Jonah proclaimed, you're in trouble. <laughs> you're so cooked. Um, and he did it half-heartedly because he knew what, according to his own words later in the book. He knew his compassion and his mercy and that he was a forgiving God. All along. It was that faith and that repentance and that running and turning to God that was the foundation of the relationship with God. All the way back, Isaac, again, faith, not works, which would be Ishmael. Yes, sir. how to bridge the gap. What I can't tell you is how to bridge the gap in such a way that they will accept it. And unfortunately, I think that's usually what we're trying to do because that requires that I make them respond somehow, and I can't do that. Remember, Jesus himself, Paul, had far more rejected than accepted. But 
with that, first question I would ask, and, and I'm, I'm assuming this isn't just hypothetical, so, okay, what kind of synagogue exactly, how much are they trying to, where on the spectrum are they of Judaism today? If they are truly attempting to please God um, and attain salvation, forgiveness of sins by the law, first thing I'm going to do is say, how's that going for you? Are you doing it? Because that's, that's what Paul's trying to say throughout, all the way back to Romans 3.23. None is righteous. None of us can do that. So the answer I usually get, and I've had that conversation some, is, well, I'm doing pretty good. Okay, fair enough. I would might even allow that your pretty good is better than I would do. So we're not arguing here about how good you are versus other people. But what's the standard of the law? Is it 50%? 70%? 90%? What's the standard? And what's the answer, by the way? It's 100%. There's nowhere in the law that says pick and choose or these are optional. There's not even the, the, the concept we have in our law of we have infractions and then we have... Um, misdemeanors, but it seems like even with traffic, there's one in between. But uh, having just gone through the process of paying hundreds of dollars to have that removed from my record, yes, got the very first uh, Valentine's Day, my very first ticket on a motorcycle. Um, I still maintain the guy was just in a bad mood because another a cop did exactly what I did while he had me pulled over. He didn't even acknowledge it. Like, wait a minute. But that said, the infraction was real, which is why I paid the fine and did the traffic school. Because I actually did that. No matter how much I argue, it's not a big deal. See? We don't get to say, well, it's not a big deal. It's still an infraction. It's still breaking the law. And while we have these levels that say, okay, it's an infraction, and, you know, if you really push it, you could lose your license, but it's not going to send me to jail because the level of disobedience we have stamped not big enough. So there's simply not a penalty that can apply. Does that make sense? That's what we do. And, and so that's burned into our heads. We've got to go back to the Word then and say, now, is that true for the law? for the Mosaic Law? And the answer is, of course not. It's not there anywhere. All right, then, so how is the disobedience that you, no matter how good you are, but you have done to some law, how exactly is that taken care of? How is that forgiven? And by the way, this has to be a scriptural discussion. Because if it goes to, well, I really feel, then... <laughs> Sorry, we, we can't discuss on that basis. Because in the Bible, the only way that can be forgiven is God doing something outside the law. The law does not provide ever for full forgiveness. Even with the temple sacrifice, even with uh, the, the observance on Yom Kippur and the, the sacrifice that was put on the head of the goat and driving the goat out, what the wording of the law says is that rolled the sin back for a year. That's all. Just, just put it off for a year. Yeah. And unfortunately, since oh, approximately 8080, depending on your dating, 
um, that hasn't happened. Because the law specifies that had to happen through the temple sacrifice. So, in other words, there is no way that the law can bring you to forgiveness today. Now, on the other hand, I would then ask them, what was the point of the law to begin with? And I'm going to go exactly what Paul was doing. Was it to teach us and to bring us to God recognizing that we needed to simply cry out to God as the Assyrians did, as David did. Because the Psalms say he had forgiveness. And what was that based? Sure it wasn't him keeping the law, because he stunk at that. It was based on him repenting and coming before the Lord. Today, we have the Messiah. And for this, I can go back to Peter. This is the beautiful thing about the passages in Scripture is that every time the apostles went to Scripture to show the, the, the development of the Gospel, what Scripture did they use? What Scripture was available to them? It was all the Old Testament. Because if I talk to this person in a synagogue and start quoting from the New Testament, they're going to do like this, only probably with a star, and not want to hear me, because as far as they're concerned, the New Testament's nonsense. Even worse. So I have to go back to the Old Testament teachings, but I've got the Old Testament teachings in several different places, through Paul and through Peter, doing exactly that. So I walk them through that. And the conclusion is, this Jesus, who was, I won't say whom you crucified, but whom they crucified, God made Lord and Messiah. Jesus is the one. The whole time the law was pointing to, you need someone, you need a sacrifice that's bigger than any sacrifice you've got. And it happened. Stumbling block, by the way. Why did most Jews, why is Christianity today a Gentile faith, almost entirely exclusive of Jews, by their own choice? That own choice happened approximately 65 A.D. with a um, conclave would be the probably a Christian name for the gathering, but a gathering of of uh, rabbis who proclaimed anybody who believed in Jesus as Messiah must be put out of the synagogue, and that was an order sent out from Jerusalem through the entire Roman world and practiced, which is why in those later letters. You see, like Hebrews, they were going through such a difficult time. But Jesus is the Messiah, according to all these, this testimony. And all of the law pointed to the Messiah coming. So the question I would then ask, for the, ask them, and this is where they have to make a choice is, is there any other way in your law for you to be forgiven? Is there anything in this for you except to try to be a good person or a, quote, good enough person when you know that's not possible? There are no such people. Is there anything that makes more sense and is more consistent with the Old Testament law than this fulfillment? And if they're really open, then I would take them to Romans. 
Because, again, that's exactly what he's doing, is talking to people like that. And he's speaking their language more than they would speak today because he had that firsthand experience, not only of the synagogue, but of the temple as well. And then it's in their hands. And unfortunately, this is where they fight history and they fight thousands of years of people saying they're Christian. I, by the way, am not at all convinced the majority of them were. But they did say that. And then treating Jewish people in horrible ways. This can't be denied. It's real. And, and even going so far as to blame the death of the Messiah on the Jews and want to be God's instrument for punishing the Jews for that. Hence, Christ killers. And the only thing I can do with that is say, number one, I am a Christian, and I bear you zero ill will. And I frankly don't believe, according to our own scripture, that anybody who practices hatred of you is truly Christian. Jesus himself said, not everybody who says he's Christian is. So, I, I frankly just reject that they are. But I also believe that what God has done as he said he would do all the way back in the covenant with Abraham, is use that covenant as a blessing for all nations, not just the nation of Israel, not just the people of Israel. And that's what's happened. And then again, we just have to turn it over to the Holy Spirit and hope that he works in them. And I've seen it happen, but I've seen it not happen a lot too. again, even thousands of years of persecution of Jewish people by people who claim to be us. Now again, I, I think it's a lie. I think it is a, a satanic lie. And it's worked. It's worked very, very well, both for, against Jews and against others who look at Christians and say, if that's who you are, I want nothing to do with it. Well, in the first place, it's not about us, but in the second place, who said that's who we are? 
but it's worked. How many of us have heard that? You know, um, it, it's it's insidious, and I think as Christians, we the only I don't have a weapon against it, but the only thing I can I can do is to be honest and say I I totally get that, and for what it's worth, I, I reject all of that behavior. And I believe Jesus himself has rejected that behavior. I think that's clear in Scripture. So I don't see a contradiction because I never accept those people as Christians. People who would commit genocide. I mean, and always the the Crusades are a great example because it's always brought up. What about the Crusades? Well, what about it? The Crusades were a bunch of people calling themselves Christian, teaming up with a bunch of people who called themselves Muslim, against a bunch of other people calling themselves Christians, and others calling themselves Muslim. And can anybody guess what it was all about? What? Uh, political power, but there was another motive even bigger. Plain, old, simple greed. Gold. There were extraordinary fortunes made. And unfortunately, the Jews had no political power, had no military power, had no armies, because they were scattered. And so they got caught in a squeeze in between. But it wasn't Christians against Jews and Christians against Islam. That's a total myth. If you look at the history of the Crusades, there wasn't just Christians on this side as though it was a unity. There were Christians slaughtering Christians, or people calling themselves that anyway. And on the other side, Muslims slaughtering others who called themselves Muslims. And they would align with each other, and it was all about how can we get the most power, how can we get the most gold. And as soon as you look at that, how many people would consider that Christian? How many people today would say, yeah, that was, that was us? Of course not. But if you've been part of a, of a people who has been systematically and horribly persecuted for well over a thousand years, and that's part of it, it's kind of hard to just drop that. Hard to forget it. So I get that, and that's where I'm back to turning it over to the Holy Spirit. I can explain it, but it still requires them to accept one basic thing, and that is Jesus is indeed the Messiah. Forget us, forget the rest of us. Maybe, maybe all of us are fake and not real followers of Jesus. The question is about Jesus, not about us. So forget us, look into the Bible, and tell me, is Jesus the Messiah? And if you say no, on what basis do you say no? How do you say no? Because there's nothing Jewish or Christian that would say Jesus isn't that. Just not there. Is that helping? Okay. But prepare yourself for that disappointment and frustration because that resistance is, I'm sure you've already experienced, it is extraordinary. Yeah. Extremely so. And, it, and it's fascinating because in the midst of this culture, and most of those folks are very much a part of this culture, that's still embedded so heavily they can't get past it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. Exactly. And and I I would agree. I would separate that. I, I never take the step, and I'm, I'm just going to throw this out for whatever it's worth, of equating that with the nation of Israel, which is a worldly political entity that is, frankly, largely atheistic. <laughs> Let's be real. So to talk about the Jewish people and talk about the nation of Israel is not the same thing. There's an overlap, of course. There's a historical connection. But when you look at Israel today, the, the political Israel, the entity, um, it's not about being Jewish or being faithful to God because a large, large percentage of the people in Israel don't believe in God at all. It's not a matter of how to be faithful. It's just who cares. And I, I think that's probably accurate for uh, the second biggest concentration of Jewish people, which is the United States. In fact, I'm not entirely sure it's the second biggest. We don't have concentration in one place, but it is entirely possible that we have more than Israel itself spread across the country. And so what we've got to do, that's, that's why that first part about, okay, where are they in their faith? Do they even have faith? Um, the chairman of our elders is Jewish. You guys are aware of this. Now, if you talk to him about his faith before he became Christian, he would say, what faith? And that's an extremely common thing because their family basically didn't have any faith. There was no particular belief. Anybody watch the sitcom Big Bang Theory? Anybody willing to admit that you watched it? Okay. I confess it. Um, but it was, it was out of my fleshly weakness. I never watched it before I was hit by that truck. It's all about being hit by the truck and then disease afterwards. Okay? But there's a, there's a character in there, Wallowitz, and he really is, I mean, the, the writers are Jewish, so this isn't an accident. He really is um, more representative of the typical Jew in America than what we tend to think, because we tend to think Christian, but with Old Testament focus instead, doesn't know Jesus, and we read our faith back into them. That's not how they see it. The majority of them, it's all about DNA. It's about their, their lineage. And so here you've got Howard Wallowitz, who really strongly um, identifies himself as Jewish and, and wants that as he's sitting there eating a triple bacon cheeseburger which, in case you didn't know, is violating several different <laughs> kosher codes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Not a bad discussion in summary because this, this tension that we're talking about and how then do you reach them, that's exactly what Paul's saying. I wish I could be accursed if I could get through to them because by this time, they didn't hate Christians the same way. They hated Christians just because we claimed to have their Messiah. So that just automatically didn't work well. But they just hated Gentiles, period. Because Gentiles had overrun them over and over and over and over and over for over 700 years. Every group of Gentiles that came through did the same thing to them. And so they had this nationalism, even though they didn't really have a nation by this time. And Paul knew this because he was part of that. Guy's a Roman citizen, for Pete's sake, but really identified first as a Jew. 
So how do I reach my own people? And in his frustration, he's already said that. I wish I could be accursed if it would result in them coming to faith. Because he understood that many of them simply wouldn't embrace it. Okay. Let's move on. And in moving on, now we go back. Is there any other questions? We had none, but I'll give you another shot. Okay. This has to be one of my favorite chapters of the Bible to study. So I'm going to work hard. Now, we've, we've spent some time. We're going to overlap into next week, and the next week will overlap into the final week, but the final week intentionally was a shorter passage to give us time to catch it all up. Um, so don't worry about that. But I have literally taught many times well over an hour the first two verses. The first time I ever spoke to a very large group was when I was 20 years old, in 1976, and uh, speaking to a large group of teenagers and youth workers at a big, giant area youth convention. And I was invited to preach on these two verses. And it is amazing. Therefore, therefore goes back to all the stuff he's been talking about. So there's two ways to look at it. It's therefore, everything I've said in the last what we would call 11 chapters of the letter. But it's also, therefore, in this eruption of praise that is the last couple of sentences in the 11th chapter. Because that's the most immediate antecedent of what he's about to say. So, therefore, I urge you, brothers, urge, what is the word? Parakalel, or parakalo. In this place. And what does it mean? Hmm? Hold in. There's an intimacy, there's a closeness to this. Okay. It literally means to be called alongside, and then the verb version is, because it's not passive, I am standing by you calling this. So the one who is called alongside would be called a helper, a counselor, um, the Holy Spirit. Jesus gave the same word, what we, the paraclete, which is just English letters for the Greek word. Para, alongside, kaleo, for call. That's where we get the English word call. Okay? And you're going to see this in other, and you have seen it in other study guides, because it is a big word in the Bible. It is an important one. Um, I'm urging you, I'm, I'm, I'm standing here, I'm putting my arm around you, I'm not just yelling at you, telling you you should do this, I'm, I'm doing this in a very personal, very intimate way, you're my brothers, and, and I'm one of you, you know, and that, that's, that's the connotations coming out of this word, by the mercies of God, now he's just gotten through talking about mercies, remember, because all of us are shut up in disobedience, but all of us then have the mercy of God because of that and because of what happened with Jesus. To present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Then you've got two groups. You've got the Jews. What did they know about sacrifice? What was, what was their experience with sacrifice? Okay. It was, well, I'm fishing for the animal sacrifice in the temple. Okay. Now, many of the Jews, by the way, had very little ex uh, experience with it because Jews believed, because the law said, 
the sacrifice had to be in Jerusalem. Period. These are people in Rome. Many of them slaves. Many of them people who had, who had been born there, grown up there in slavery, never went to Jerusalem. They never were part of that. But they'd heard about it. And that, that whole thing about wanting to be in Jerusalem and, and the, the holiness of the temple was built into their national experience. Even, even for slaves. On the other hand, you have all the Gentiles with their experience of sacrifice. Yeah. Pretty much exactly the same thing, except they're sacrificing to all of these various gods in the Roman pantheon. Or for that matter, in any other pantheon. Because whenever Rome conquered an area, they simply incorporated their pantheon into the Roman pantheon. See, that was a way to make sure that there wasn't an enmity. They had no problem with the Jews worshipping Yahweh. Their problem was with the Jews not worshipping the others at the same time. That's why Jews were called atheists. It wasn't because they didn't believe in any God, it was because they didn't believe in all the rest of them. And Christians inherited that. So, they understood sacrifice. Now Paul says, I urge you to present your bodies, but as a living and holy, excuse me, holy sacrifice. Every sacrifice had to be holy. There was no such thing as an unholy sacrifice, even to the pagans. If it was unholy by the standards of that God, small g, you were committing blasphemy, and the followers of that God were likely to try to kill you. If it was unholy by God's standards, the same thing happened. That was blasphemy, and if the Romans would allow it anyway, because they were under the Roman rule, there was a death penalty for that. That's how serious this is. Holy means set aside entirely for the use of the, de- of the deity and kept pure because you did not give filth to God. So instead of worrying about sacrificing in the temples or the temple back in Jerusalem, present your body, yourself, as a living, not dying, not dead, living sacrifice and let it be holy acceptable to God, which is your spiritual... Did anybody look that word up? If you had looked... It's not one of the lists, but if you'd looked it up, you would see it comes from the word logos. Logikin. Which is why some translations call it the reasonable... But, it, but spiritual and reasonable are not mutually exclusive. Your spiritual service of worship, the word is latrevo, or latria is the noun form here, from which we get liturgy. And the whole English phrase, worship, service. A service means we're serving that, that God, and of course for us, that means we're serving our God, the only God, but not by going and doing tasks, by worshiping. And we've kind of lost that. We, we, we don't think of that as service to God, which is why we as a culture, and by culture I mean Christians in America, take worship so lightly. 
ever notice on a Sunday morning at 9.15 how many people are actually present and focused? I'll tell you right now, it's usually roughly 30% of who's going to end up there. Literally, I count. I'll stand there and count because it's a way to make sure I'm fuming. You know? Or I look outside and how many people are out lounging and drinking coffee because after all, we're just singing. See, they've, they've missed that. No, everything we do, the music, the prayer, the offering, it's not business. It's worship. It's serving God through worship. And we've missed this concept, which means then when we come to something like this, we don't even have a reference for it. And that's, that's a shame. I don't know any other word for it. And, verse 2, and, do not be conformed to this world. The word conformed, uh, did anybody look that up? Okay. Now, the C is a um, prefix. So, if you take the C part out, what do you see? Take the first two letters off, those of you who looked at the word. What? Exactly. Schema, which is where we get the word schematic. And it, it is, for us, it is a design, right? But the, the meaning of this word as opposed to the next one we're going to look at, which also has to do with shape, with form, is this is external. This is about outside. Okay? So don't let yourself, and by the way, it is passive, okay, be conformed. Somebody else is doing it. Who's doing it? The world's doing it. Don't be conformed to this world. Don't let the world make you fit its mold, fit its shape. And don't try to fit it yourself, by the way. Uh, that's not consistent with the tense, but I think it's a legitimate conclusion. If I'm not going to let the world do it, why in the world would I do it myself then? And yet how many in the church want so badly to fit into the world? We want so badly to be accepted. We want so badly to be cool, to look good, to look contemporary, all of those different things. Don't do that. But instead, he offers an alternative, be transformed. Now, what's that word? Yeah, it's where we get the metamorphosis. Uh, metamorphosis is what describes a, a butterfly going into a cocoon and then coming out. Okay. Now, no one's looking at this from surely a biologic thing. I'm quite certain that there's stuff inside the the Pupa? Is that what goes in the cocoon? Larva? What, the worm? <laughs> As Sheldon would call it. Um, I'm quite sure that the stuff inside that is probably still inside that midsection of the butterfly. Okay? But from the view of it, it becomes the whole, the whole essence of it changes. How many of us think about butterflies as flying worms? You know? No. But... The word, then, is what is inside. 
So don't let the world just shape you on the outside and try to look like the world, but instead be changed from the inside out. I would call your attention back once again to the fruit of the Spirit, what the Spirit does in our life, according to Paul. Those nine traits, which if those nine traits are in our lives, 100% change us. Everybody know I'm, I'm seeing interesting looks on your faces. Do you know what I'm speaking of? Uh, not the gifts, the fruit of the Spirit. Yeah. The, the fruit are way more important than the gifts in my mind because that is what changes us as, as individuals to become more like Christ. Okay. But how do we do that? By the renewing of our minds so that you may prove, interesting word also, dokimadso, um, goes all the way back to, back to the idea of smelting and purifying and then being shown, therefore, to be pure. So the, the proving isn't just, see, it is that. It's making it that. It's, it, it is also frequently trans, translated to purify what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And by the way, if you, if you listen to the whole progression there, how do you know what God's will is? Has anybody here has ever asked what God's will is for them? Okay? So how do we know according to what Paul just said? What? Yeah, but how do we know? Yeah. Back up for you. It's right there. What? Being transformed. See, if we're not, if the Spirit isn't doing that in our lives, if we're fighting the Spirit, if you go back and read that passage in Galatians 5, you'll find that what Paul is telling them is you can do that. You can fight the Spirit. You can get it, give in to what he calls the work of the flesh. And he lists those. And then he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the things. And he says, by the way, against which there is no law. Because he's telling them, don't go back to the law. You don't have to worry about the law. There's no law against these. Let the Spirit do its work in you. And when you do, the, the will of God becomes a lot clearer. But when you don't, then we don't know what the will of God is. And we're constantly asking. We don't know, and there is no way in the world anybody's going to be able to tell us. Because we're not ready for it. We're, we're almost like receptacles with, with holes in us, wanting the will to be poured in so that we can hold it and have it. And what happens to it? It just leaks right through us. This is an extraordinary two sentences. It's amazing what's being said here. In the spiritual health assessment, we talk about worship. And the first thing that we look at is individual worship. Not just the corporate, the the, the treya, but the individual. And the presenting of your bodies, the not being conformed, the being transformed, that's what that's about. And when you think about it, it encompasses every part of our life. It's so big, so broad, that there's not an aspect of our life that doesn't fit into this. Now that said, Paul's then going to continue. There is a 
question on the, on this, I ask you to list all of the things Paul exhorts in this passage, this chapter. You might actually do that. Okay, here's my list, and just to see the number of things, and that's just the chapter. There's other chapters where he barely touches the exhortation thing, but in this chapter he then goes on and just keeps pouring things out. All of these are the the outward living uh, of what faith is. Remember, we talked about faith isn't just believing in the sense of accepting a truth. It's also trusting God and living accordingly. So, in, I mean, we call Hebrews 11 the faith chapter. This should be the faith chapter. Because this is what faith looks like lived out. Okay. For through the grace of God, no, I'm sorry, through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. So now he starts, okay, now, I want you to just think about yourself. Remember, he's already hit this. This isn't entirely a new thing. So he says, for example, to them wild branches over there being uh, grafted in, don't be getting arrogant here. Right? So the Jews, of course, also saw themselves, even in the church, as superior to the Gentiles because the Jews saw themselves superior to the Gentiles spiritually, period. That was the culture. You may have better armies. You may have conquered us. But we have covenant. You know. And so there was an arrogance there about being children of Abraham. Paul has also taken that on. Yeah, you're children of Abraham if you have faith. Otherwise, no. Because the, the children of Abraham are not the children by flesh, but by faith. He's already explained that. So, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but think so as to have sound judgment as God is allotted to each a measure of faith. Just as we have many members in one body and all members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Now remember, who are the big groups he's talking about? Two big groups. Jews, Gentiles, Jews, Gentiles, constantly pulling them in. Now he says something that is utterly outrageous to them. This is the very kind of thing that got him stoned, literally, in, uh, was it Lystra? Lystra Derby, that was that region. Because he had the, the gall to say, not only that the Gentiles could be benefit from the Messiah, but the God was making us one. And boy, did they not like that, the, the Jews. Because their version of the Messiah was the guy who was going to come, restore the power of David, so we can kill all of them. Because for 700 years, that's what they've been doing to us. Which was true, by the way. They were. Okay. So he says this amazing thing. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, and then if you look closely, you will notice this next phrase that I'm about to read is an interpolation. Each of us is to exercise them accordingly. So where did they get that? Who wrote that? 
The translators wrote it. And they got it from the context. I don't argue that that's exactly what Paul's saying. But what he wrote was, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, if prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. And then on. That other part wasn't even there. And I'm not real sure we needed that there. His service in his serving. He who teaches in his teaching. He who exhorts. What's the word exhort, by the way? Anybody look it up? You should be retranslating the whole passage. Assuming you were doing that. Which is what word? Yeah, we're back to the urge thing. It's exactly the same word. See, that's going to pop up over and over and over, both in our concept of God, but also in how we are to interact with each other. So he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. In other words, whatever God's given you, whatever gifts, whatever abilities, whatever leanings, and it begs the question of what a gift is. Now, everybody here has probably heard the term spiritual gift, right? In 12.6, the word gift is used, setting this up, and the word is charismata which is the plural of charisma, or the English charisma, hence charismatic. Okay? What does that mean? Did anybody look that up? Okay. It's a gift of grace. It's a grace gift. Literally, it's a grace thing. Now, the thing is, Grace means gift, which is why we keep hearing both words popping up, because today we don't think grace and gift. I mean, that's a theological construct for us. We think grace in, a, in several different ways, like beauty that walks smoothly and, and poetically. That, that person has a lot of grace, right? Or even in terms of theology, we're saved by grace and for well over a thousand years, the majority of Western Christianity, for that matter, Orthodox Christianity in the East, has economized that and made it into a, a commodity that literally you're seen to gain more and more of by doing different things, earning it. And the more you get, the closer you are to being saved because it takes a certain amount of that. Totally foreign to what the word means. It means a gift. No. No. Actually, number one, it's a Greek word. himself taught that that was God's intent from the beginning in the law. Right. So it wasn't a change. Okay, I'll buy that man was changing it. Yeah, and Jesus simply brought them back. I call you back to Jonah. The forgiveness, and by the way, forgiveness is a charisma in the New Testament. There's, uh, we, we have these fun little lists, and if you've ever taken a, a spiritual gift inventory, yeah, rip that up, and it's great for starting fires. 
There's not literally, there's not one of them valid. And that's, that's not my judgment on them. That's simply a fact. There's no validity in terms of the science of inventories to those, any of those. Because they're trying to measure, in worldly terms, a spiritual reality. Can't be done. Number two, they're all based on a list of things that they've decided these are the gifts. So now we put God in this little box. If you do a study of the word gift, because the term spiritual gift does not appear in the scripture anywhere. Charisma is the word most often translated that. But dorea, we get the, the you hear the, the root do. What do you do on uh, if you give money to a charity? You donate it. That's where we get the root. So that is also a, a giving or a gift. And if you look in the New Testament at the things that God as a spirit are said to give, the list is phenomenal. And it includes things. That we have a theology, I was taught at least, that a spiritual gift is miraculous, and here's on this box, on this list, it's one of those. You have one of those. Which one is it? Oh, by the way, God won't tell you. You have to figure it out. God gives it to you. He gives it to you for the benefit of the body and for you to use in order to accomplish his will. And then he sits back and says, I'm not going to tell you, neener, neener, neener. Well, of course, uh, the very definition of the word gift is undeserved. But the problem is, no one gets a gift and doesn't tell the person. This, this idea of a hidden gift that we have to discover is 100% unscriptural. There is no one in Scripture who ever discovered a gift. It simply happened to them. Now, some of those gifts were existent before conversion. Abilities, natural abilities, were considered charisma. Okay? So, some have said, I have the gift of teaching. I'll let you be the judge. But, I was teaching adults when I was 14 years old. I was teaching something very different than this. Because I didn't know the Lord. But still. So I was taught when I came to the Lord, well, you, that can't be your gift. Because you already had that. A spiritual gift is given to you when you come to the Lord. So we have all these ridiculous things that we add on to as baggage to the term spiritual gift. Be very careful of that. But this passage is one of those that is often used in order to support those. All this passage is saying is whatever God, God has given you, in faith, Use it, because we believe the truth, because we trust God, and we want to then behave faithfully. So do whatever it is. You, sir, what's your gift? Not the right one. No, you have a specific gift. That's it, right there. So use it in faith, see? Uh, Now, I'm a hospitable person. But I don't have the same gift. It doesn't work the same way. So we, we each have different things. And as we, we use them together, we're each members of a body. Member, by the way, is part. There's a part, right? If I don't have this part, then my body doesn't function well. So it takes all of us using the gifts in faithfulness to God. That's what he's saying. That's all he's saying. There's no system of spiritual gifts here. Isn't the love of God as such that when we come into the world, 
each one of us a gift, whether we're saved or not, and we can't operate to the fullest of what He's given us unless we uh, enter the body of Christ and are led by the Spirit of God. The second part I'm totally in agreement with, because that's scriptural. The first part is speculation. Might be true, might not. I don't know. You know, are, are we all given one, born into a gift? I have no idea. In, in terms of charisma, uh-huh. don't know. I don't. I wouldn't argue with it. That may be me and my experience. Right. And, and I wouldn't argue with it necessarily, but I'm not going to say yes to this, no. to the scripture teaching it. I can't. I can't give it. Yeah. God so loved the world. Yeah. That's But I think people, they aren't saved. I don't know if they're saved now. I pray for them. But, uh, and they can do excellent things. Sure. Better than other sure. people. And they're not concerned about that. I just, that's a God gift. You say, oh, yeah. You look at them and just keep going. Um, I watched a MASH rerun last night. And Mulcahy, you guys all know MASH. Everybody, you've seen the, okay. <coughs> Excuse me, I just blew somebody's ears off here. Um, the priest, Father Mulcahy, is standing, uh, they're actually in the showers, and he's leaving, and uh, the major, who's um, the, the New England snob, um, Winchester, Winchester has just performed some enormous surgery, and he comes in, and Mulcahy says, Major, I have wonderful news about one of your patients. Uh, no, wonderful news. And he says, what is it? And he says, one of your patients survived. <laughs> and Winchester's about ready to, you know, I think he says, don't, don't pull your cross on me, Lieutenant. And he goes, no, 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 I mean, uh, and then he gives the name. And, you know, I was praying while you were, uh, the whole time, God answered my prayer, and he survived his wounds. And Winchester says, You should have been praying to me. I'm, it was my surgery that saved him. And okay, he says, oh, but that's what I was asking God for. And I love that. It was like, okay, so you're the skilled surgeon, but I'm asking God to use that. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, I think obviously people who are not Christians have gifts. Now, there are certain gifts, not, not probably these, that were uh, given miraculously. We almost always misinterpret them. drives me crazy. For example, the gift of healing. I've had people come to me in the last two years, numerous, when they find out about my diagnosis and say, um, God has given me the gift of healing, so I want to pray for you that you'll be healed. And I say, get away. You know, no, I don't. I said, listen, you go ahead and pray for me. But I would ask you to pray for me to be faithful, not that you pray for me to be healed. But if you've got the gift of healing, then just heal me. Because in the Bible, people with the gift of healing didn't pray for it. God already given them the power to do it. They just, you know, sometimes it was lay on hands, sometimes get up. You know? It was just... So, okay, if you've got the gift, do it. But, no one was born with that. That was explicitly given by God in what we would call a miraculous way. Okay, verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Now he's talking spiritual gifts or gifts. Now he's talking love. Is that a change of subject? Or is there a connection?
and you all go, hmm. Not a change, not a change. Who votes for not a change? Okay. Who's still wondering if I'm setting you up? Okay. First Corinthians 12 through 14, the largest section of teaching in the New Testament about spiritual gifts. And right smack in the middle is what we call First Corinthians 13. And what do we call it? The love chapter. Where Paul says the greatest of these. Now he's listed a few. But what he's talking about with all of those, the context, the greater context is charismata. What we would call spiritual gifts. So love is not only not a change of subject, love is a culmination of the discussion. It is, according to Paul in Corinthians, the most important gift. So let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Uh, many would make the case, by the way, that what he does and what this what we call a paragraph here, um, and even uh, 14 and on, is actually illustrating verse 9, the first part. That let love be without hypocrisy is the, the overall statement, and everything that comes after is illustrating how to do that. Okay? I don't know if that was his intent, but it certainly works. So abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, and be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Okay. And by the way, that is an interesting word. Because usually when we hear brotherly love, we hear what? What word? Phileo. Or brotherly love might even be further because we know the city. Adelphia. Adelphia is brother. So phileo, but the, the root feel, Adelphia, city of brotherly love. This is still story. It's a different one. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Four Loves. So we think in terms of agape, which is let love be without hypocrisy, of phileo, brotherly love, of eros, which is never used in the New Testament, but romantic, uh, sexual, erotic love. Storhi is even more a familiar love. Brotherly love is something many of us have with people we're not related to. Right? My brother and I were never close. Um, I never. <laughs> but I had friends and had friends who are way closer to me than I ever was to him. So brotherly love applies there and frequently is used in that. But storhi is a word that truly is that love you've got from belonging to a family group. So, you know, you can choose your friends, but you're stuck with your family. It's that one, which is interesting when you think about the body of Christ, and he just got to say we're members of one another. So maybe it's not... Huh. It's actually a compound word. It's storhi, and this is philostorhi. The two of them put together. Shows in my Greek text right there. There it is. First in, feels dorky. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, it's got both, actually. Ten? Yeah, 10 has brotherly love give preference to one another. I'm sorry, I even looked ahead to give preference to one another is storky, which, by the way, is really weak. 
because it's way it's a stronger word than, than brotherly love than Philadelphia. So there's Philadelphia, there's agape, and there's philostorhi. Um, in the New American Standard, it's give preference. Yeah. Do you see why I said this was so much fun? I mean, this is crammed. There's just so much in here. Okay, I'm going to finish the paragraph. <laughs> I, I, I will. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Okay. And in this case, serving the Lord is the, the, the levo, which is like bondservant. So having given yourself, this isn't the worship, although I think Paul would agree everything we do is worship because of 12.1. But this is giving yourself to the Lord as a bondservant. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, again, another phase that is rich, literally hanging in under the pressure. Philipsis, um, an ancient uh, torture of pressure. And ipomone, which means to live under. <laughs> literally, it's, it's the word translated patience in the fruit of the Spirit. So, live under the pressure. Think about everything you deal with in life that you experience as pressure. Um, devoted to prayer, and the word prayer is the general word there, contributing to the needs of the saints. Who's the saints? So what he does here is contributing to the needs of the saints, that's us, in group, and showing hospitality. And what's the word hospitality? Okay. So we've got zero again, but zeno, what is that? Stranger, someone you don't know. So, taking care of those of us in the body, taking care of each other, but also showing love to all those who don't even know. So it's, it's pretty much 100% here, but calling out each different way. We think of hospitality frequently as, um, you know, I'll have you over one day, you have me over the next, and, you know, that's not hospitality, because we're not strangers. Hospitality is, um, hey, I haven't seen you here before. I'm Randy. Would you like to come over some hot dogs after the service? Best friend I ever had in the world. We made, that was my line. Don and I were in our first full-time ministry, and we were shopping for friends. In fact, I remember that phrase, because he looked at me and he said, Why? And I later learned there were people in Amway, forgive me if you're in Amway, uh, in the congregation who were inviting people over for lunch after the service and they pull out the, the chart with the circles and, you know, doing their thing. So he had, they had fallen victim to that a month earlier, so why? And I said, well, you may have known us, noticed I'm on staff here. I was the number two guy on a two-person staff at, at the church. He said, yeah, I've seen that. And I said, well... Don and I are new here, and uh, we've been here before. The only people we know are our parents' age. Because it's an Air Force congregation. Everybody our age had moved. So we're shopping for friends. And he just looked at me. <laughs> I've never heard it put that way. Like, okay. Um, we became godparents to their children. They became godparents to ours. I got to marry 
they're oldest my first year here, and a few years later go out and sit on the parents' row as the Air Force chaplain married the youngest. And they're still very good friends today. Love of strangers is reaching out. It's amazing what God will do with that. But it's a little scarier than reaching out to people we already know. People we already know may say, well, somebody invited us over for lunch on Sunday and we already had plans with our daughter and nobody's feeling for her. It's no big deal. It's a little scarier when it's strangers. Okay. All of this is how we live out that faith we're talking about. What does that faith look like day to day? And I think a case could be made that it is also all what presenting our bodies a living sacrifice looks like. Now, we're at verse 14. So next week we're going to pick up there and move forward. And you'll notice, by the way, um, he's going to start, and I'll just ask you this question, and if you don't know the answer, go find it, because it's not on your study guide. But in verse 14, he's picking up with something Jesus himself taught, and once again taught in terms of the law, and yet going beyond it. Boy, is that a hint. Okay, so we're done. Thank you guys, and we'll see you next week. And I am now turning off the recorder.